Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be serving as your moderator today. We are delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on November 19th. The article for that call will be the frequency of stress testing used to document ischemia prior to elective percutaneous coronary intervention. Please join us. Many organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Ingrid Nygaard, first author of the article, Prevalence of Symptomatic Pelvic Floor Disorders in U.S. Women, which was published in the September 17th issue of JAMA. Dr. Nygaard is professor in the Division of Urogynecology and Pelvic Reconstructive Surgery within the Department of OBGYN at the University of Utah. She is also principal investigator of the NIH-sponsored Pelvic Floor Disorders Network at the university. In her clinical practice, she provides surgical and non-surgical care for women with pelvic floor disorders. Dr. Nygaard has served as president of the American Urogynecologic Society from 2006 to 2007 and is currently a consulting editor for obstetrics and gynecology. She is the author of numerous scientific publications and is the current recipient of several NIH research grants. Her primary research areas include the epidemiology of pelvic floor disorders, the impact of physical activity on pelvic floor dysfunction, and randomized surgical trials in the fields of pelvic floor disorders. Welcome, Dr. Nygaard. Thank you. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Nygaard's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. Author in the Room is designed for you to hear directly from Dr. Nygaard about her research findings. Together, Dr. Nygaard and I will help you translate this research into improvements that you can implement in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. We will spend about 10 minutes, uh, Dr. Nygaard will, summarizing her findings, and then I'll spend about five minutes to draw out some of the implications for real-world practice settings and the changes we want to make there. I want to express how important your participation is on these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that you may take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation in turn, and not just in terms of questions, but also offering up your experience in this area will be very helpful. There are approximately 50 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Nygaard, who will provide an overview of her article. Dr. Nygaard. Thanks. Well, it's great to be here and um, spend the next hour talking about pelvic floor disorders with you all. Um, I want to point out that this research project that the article was based on was conducted by the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network, and that is an NIH-funded network whose mission is prevention and treatment of pelvic floor disorders. We also had collaborators from the National Center of Health Statistics, and the study was funded by our group, the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network, um, as well as by the National Institute of Health Office of Research on Women's Health and the Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. So a lot of different players that had interest in this particular topic because we had a sense that the scope was large, but we didn't have a good sense of how large that was. Um, as subspecialists, my colleagues and I see only women that are 100% affected by pelvic floor disorders. So we thought it would be wise to try to put that in perspective with the big picture in the United States, since we're obviously just seeing the tip of the iceberg. 
Um, and while there have been other epidemiologic studies in the United States, in the United States, especially pertaining to urinary incontinence, there hadn't been until this study any single national prevalence estimate that was derived from the same population-based sample looking at the multiple different pelvic floor disorders in women. So we didn't have a good way to assess the actual burden that women face um, related to pelvic floor disorders. So I'd like to spend the next couple minutes by just discussing briefly what pelvic floor disorders are, the trouble that we have with defining them, and then what we found in our study. So the primary pelvic floor disorders include urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, fecal incontinence, and other sensory and emptying abnormalities of the lower urinary and GI tract. Um, pelvic organ prolapse is sometimes less known by people, and that refers to um, falling down into the vagina of the pelvic organs, such as the uterus, the top of the vagina, the bladder, and the rectum. Um, and in that particular condition, women generally notice a bulge coming down or out of the vagina. We have trouble, though, with defining even urinary and fecal incontinence, so I'm sure everybody on the line uh, thinks they know what it is. Um, we sadly have no consensus about a definition. What we do know is that it's extremely common for all women, once in a blue moon, to leak urine. In fact, about half of college athletes leak urine during their sport. So a tiny bit of leakage now, once and again, is quite common. And we weren't interested in knowing um, the prevalence of that. We were more interested in understanding the prevalence of the disorders that are symptomatic enough that people might be expected to seek care. So we specifically defined urinary incontinence as moderate to severe incontinence using a questionnaire that um, was validated against clinical measures like PAD testing, which is a test that measures the amount of leakage that women actually have, or marking the number of incontinent episodes that they have on a diary. <clears throat> and this particular measure correlates well with severity based on both of those. Then to define fecal incontinence, we really had to sit back and think for a bit because similar to what I just said about urinary incontinence, anybody that's had stomach flu likely has suffered once in a lifetime with fecal incontinence, and that, again, was not what we were trying to capture with this information. Many of the existing prevalence estimates um, based on smaller populations include in their definition of fecal incontinence leakage of gas. So they include not only leakage of stool or mucus, but also leakage of gas. And we decided not to include that in this definition because we really, again, wanted to focus on the more severe condition um, that might drive women to seek care. And finally, for pelvic organ prolapse, that's best defined by physical exam, but we didn't have the ability to do pelvic examinations on um, all of these women that were participating in NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Exam Survey. Um, so we used a question about whether they could feel or see a bulge in the vagina or coming out of the vagina. Um, and what we know is that if women um, say that they have that symptom, they almost always have significant prolapse. But many women may have significant prolapse and not feel that symptom. Um, so the question has a high specificity but a low sensitivity. Um, so our, our results likely underestimate how much prolapse there is. So with all that as a background, um, we assessed 1,961 women that were not pregnant, that were 20 years or older, that participated in the NHANES survey, which is a nationally representative survey um, of U.S. individuals between 2005 and 2006. And we found, after applying standard weighting to achieve population-based estimates, that one-fourth of all the women in the United States um, are bothered by at least one pelvic floor disorder. And that broke down like this. 15.7% um, experienced urinary incontinence, 9% fecal incontinence, and 3% pelvic organ prolapse. 
Um, we found, not surprisingly, that these disorders increased incrementally with age, so that by the time we looked at the women aged 80 and over, half reported at least one pelvic floor disorder. Um, but perhaps even more surprisingly, we found in the younger women between ages 20 and 39 that one in 10 reported moderate to severe pelvic floor disorder, which was higher than what we had anticipated. Um, not surprisingly, we found the relationship between um, childbirth and the report of pelvic floor disorders. So the more children somebody had, the more likely they were to report one. Um, but even in those with no children, one in eight reported pelvic floor disorders. So it's clear that there's much more in play um, than simply childbirth, which is often talked about. Um, and then finally, we found that as with various other medical conditions, overweight and obese women were more likely to report a pelvic floor disorder than those of normal weight um, as assessed by body mass index. Um, so we concluded that pelvic floor disorders do affect a substantial proportion of women um, and increase with age. This is obviously important because the proportion of older women is going to increase dramatically in the years ahead. Um, and when we looked back and looked at the results, we felt very strongly that much of our research effort needs to shift its focus from merely treatment uh, to prevention to the extent that that's possible. So that's it in a nutshell. Would you like to begin your question and answer segment now? Uh, just a moment, thank you. I want to thank Dr. Nygaard and uh, acknowledge your, your great work really helping us to understand the prevalence of this problem, uh, which is, I think, honestly higher than I would have expected. Uh, and it leaves me thinking a little bit as a primary care physician, um, you know, whether we in internal medicine and family medicine are really adequately screening for this disorder, and when we find it, whether we're really providing the the adequate kinds of treatment to deal with it. And so I'd like to maybe frame or suggest our conversation going forward moves a little bit just from the prevalence to the questions about um, what we do with it. So with that, I'd like to turn uh, the call over to Pamela to go ahead and set us up for questions. Thank you, sir. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone, and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. If you are using a speakerphone, you must pick up your handset before pressing star 1 to register for a question. If at any time your question has already been answered, please press star 2 to remove yourself from the question line. Please allow one moment for our first question. Our first question comes from the Organization of Metro Health Medical Center. Please proceed with your question or comment. Uh, thank you very much for sharing uh, this interesting study. I, too, did not think that the percentage was going to be as high as it was. Um, in your study on prevalence, have you considered doing any studies on treatment, or have you already have one in progress regarding treatment specifically for urinary incontinence of middle-aged to older females? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, this particular study was just a prevalence study, but the um, Pelvic Floor Disorders Network, um, as well as another NIH-sponsored treatment network called the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network, together are doing um, a host of different trials about treatment of the disorders. And specific to your question about incontinence in um, middle-aged women, the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network just finished a study called the B-DRIVE study that looked at whether adding behavioral therapy to anticholinergic medication was helpful in terms of allowing people to discontinue the medication but stay dry. Um, and what the study found, somewhat unfortunately for us, because we were hoping for different results, was that it did not augment the results of medication um, substantially. We found, as other people have found, that behavioral therapy um, was as good as medication, but the combination 
was not better and didn't let people stop a medication. Dr. Nygaard, can I ask you to clarify what you mean by behavioral therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a multifaceted program that included um, information about bladder health, urge suppression strategies, um, dietary and fluid management, pelvic floor muscle training, um, as well as lots of pep talks along the way. So it was kind of a multifaceted package deal that lasted for three months. Great. Thank you. And anything else out there to help guide us a little bit on what we should be doing to help treat women in this population? Yeah, there is a lot of information about certain types of treatments. And for stress urinary incontinence, um, in general, pelvic muscle strengthening, also known as Kegel exercises, is considered the best first-line therapy. Um, for stress incontinence, other non-surgical treatments include the use of vaginal devices, um, sometimes retraining the bladder, particularly, again, with things like fluid management or voiding intervals, um, injections around the urethra of substances that help to bulk it up, um, and then finally surgery if those things aren't effective. Um, for urge incontinence or overactive bladder symptoms, the um, mainstays of therapy are behavioral, like we just spoke about, um, or anticholinergic medications. There are also forms of neuromodulation. One that's on the market in the United States is called Interstim, and that's for people that don't respond to any other therapy. Um, but obviously need relief from continuous urinary leakage. There's some interest in the research community right now about injecting the bladder muscle with Botox, um, essentially to paralyze it so that it can't keep spasming, causing urge incontinence. Um, but that's not FDA approved for um, idiopathic urge incontinence at this point. Um, and and pelvic muscle training is sometimes also used for urge incontinence, um, but perhaps not as successful as for stress incontinence. So those are the mainstays of our incontinence treatments. Great. Thank you very much. Did that address your question, or do you have any follow-up questions? At this time, we have no other questions in the queue, but we would like to give everyone an opportunity. Just press star 1 on your keypad to ask a question today. Well, great. Well, thank you. And, you know, Dr. Nygaard, actually, I've got some more questions. And I'm, I'm curious, um, to, do you have any advice for us, again, working in the clinical office setting on what we should be doing uh, either to squirt, screen for this condition or when we find it, what kind of treatments can and should be offered at the primary care level? Yeah, it's a great question, and I really feel for people in primary care because there are so many issues to screen for um, and so many issues to consider, and how you prioritize them really is beyond me. I think because urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence um, in particular, affects such a large proportion of women, and because we know from other research that many women don't seek care unless they're prompted by their healthcare providers, um, it would be an important thing to add to the many, for example, electronic screening tools that primary care physician offices use, um, checklists, and those kind of things. There's good evidence that just providing basic information can be really helpful to women with these conditions, and that may include um, things about behavioral modifications that they can do on their own, um, it may include basic instructions about pelvic floor muscle exercises, um, or it just may include options about other treatments. I don't think everybody can be well-versed in every single aspect of medicine, but my experience as a subspecialist has been that most primary care offices that I work with are very good at addressing incontinence on a basic level. So, for example, if they have a patient who Oh, complains of fecal incontinence, they will immediately jump to thinking, how can we affect the diet to affect the stool consistency to decrease fecal incontinence? Um, and those are the kind of things that are so well within the purview of a primary care provider, and I would say even better addressed first by a primary care provider, because if that same woman, say with fecal incontinence, 
who has it because of irritable bowel syndrome, as an example, comes into a subspecialist who perhaps sees an anal sphincter tear left over from a delivery, their first impulse is going to be to fix the sphincter when probably what was needed was to address the diet or address the irritable bowel syndrome. So I think the primary care level is a very good place to start treatment for these things. Um, one caveat that I would offer about pelvic floor muscle training is this is an area where it is probably not sufficient to just give a written piece of paper about how to do exercises, so-called Kegel exercises, and send a woman on her way. Um, because we know that given the instruction to squeeze the muscles in the pelvis as if you're trying to stop your flow of urine, um, a third to a half of women do it wrong and bear down instead. So they come back a year later and they're worse because they've been bearing down consistently for a year. So it's really important that somebody check, a nurse, a doctor in the office, um, check that a woman is able to do the exercise correctly and squeeze correctly. And then it's also really important that they're trained to do an exercise program similar to any other exercise program of skeletal muscle. The pelvic floor muscles are skeletal muscle just like the biceps and triceps, and so strengthening them requires consistent, concerted efforts over time, um, just as it would if you were trying to strengthen your arms. So, Dr. Nygaard, you know, say you do have interest or a nurse in your practice who is interested in assessing, if not training women to do these exercises. How is there a quick way to assess in the office whether a woman is doing the pelvic floor strengthening exercises correctly? Yes. Um, so if the woman's on the exam table, either in the lithotomy position or frog legs, um, the goal is to have her relax her belly, relax her bottom, and then the practitioner can place a finger in the vagina. You feel the muscles about a third of the way up the vagina, um, and generally you'll feel the muscle on both sides as a hammock that's going down the sides of the vagina, and ultimately it's going to wrap under the rectum and come back up again. Then when you ask the woman to squeeze, you want to observe that the abdomen is not straining substantially, they're not simply squeezing their buttocks, and that you feel a little pull, a little bit of a pressure in the vagina where your finger is. Um, and most of the women that do it wrong the first couple of times will then get it right. Some women, especially older women, are so weak in the muscles um, that you almost feel as if it's your imagination. Do you feel a flicker? Do you not feel a flicker? Um, but generally, if you think you feel even a little bit and they go home and start exercising, a month later you feel something that's definitely not your imagination that's a good muscle contraction. Um, the other thing that I'll just mention on this note is that there is an increasing body of physical therapists across the United States that specialize in women's health, and they are very skilled at helping women um, maintain and strengthen the pelvic floor. So that's a really good resource for a primary care uh, provider setting as well. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Nygaard. So it sounds like an interested primary care doc, or certainly GYN, could without too much investment in time or energy, move you know up to a little bit better level in being able to assess and at least do the basic training in how to do the pelvic floor exercises. Yes, I think that's true. Great. Um, Pamela, do we have any more questions in the queue? Not at this time, sir. Great. You know, I'd like to invite any of our callers today um, in practice to share, if you could, either some of the challenges you've had in addressing these issues uh, for Dr. Nyberg to think about or any successes you had, specifically some of the techniques you've used at the systems level to either effectively screen these women or to go ahead and begin some sort of effective treatment. So we'd love to hear some of the things that are, that are really working for you. Well, and you know, on that note, I would love to hear from anybody that's instituted any kind of um, group sessions to try to treat these problems on more of a primary care basis. Um, that's something that's done much more commonly in Europe, and it's not something that I'm seeing very often in, in the U.S., and so I'm curious if anybody has started any kind of group education or group treatment sessions. 
And obviously, and, go ahead. No, we do have responses in place at this time. Oh, go ahead, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you. Our next response or question comes from the organization U.S. Jacksonville. Please proceed. Well, actually, it's U.S. Jacksonville. But um, I wanted to know, you mentioned a resource um, for assessing the Kegel uh, exercises, and I missed that. Could you repeat it, please? Oh, it was just the examiner's finger. But you mentioned a resource. Um, a resource. Um, I mentioned that that there are an increasing number of physical therapists okay. with specialty in women's health that that are very good resources, and I'm seeing these people now in smaller communities, more remote communities. Um, you know, even in Montana and Wyoming, <laughs> we have those kind of people near us in Utah, um, and that's been just a great boon of help for these women. Yeah. And, and Dr. Nygaard, yeah, thank you for your question. Please hang on the line if you have a follow-up. But Dr. Nygaard, typically how many visits do women make to the physical therapist for this kind of training? Yeah, typically between two and four. At risk for breast cancer. Um, Our breast health team. So, it, so it's not a lot of visits. No, it's not a lot of visits. And one thing that we don't know very much yet is how to maintain um, progress gotten and how to maintain adherence over the long run. There's not a lot of research on that and there's not a lot of um, clinic models about that, but it makes some sense that perhaps women should have, for example, annual checkups with their physical therapist or with their clinician um, along the way because like any other kind of a strength program, if you don't do it on some regular basis, you lose it. Yeah, oh, that makes good sense. And one other quick question is, do you know if that is typically a covered benefit under most insurance programs, the physical therapy specifically? Yeah, it's typically a covered benefit for a certain number of visits, depending on plans, um, similar to physical therapy for other parts of the body. Great, thank you. Any follow-on questions from UF Jacksonville? Yes, uh, how do you locate, aside from just calling all the physical therapy um, places, how do you know who has specialty in, in women's health issues? Yeah, one way, if the person's a member of the American Association of Physical Therapists, their website has a link to women's health specialized physical therapists, and you can find providers on that. Um, another way to locate them is through the website of the American Urogynecologic Society, um, AUGS.org. And that has a link to providers, but and, it, and we do have a fair number of physical therapists in that society, but it's still mostly physician-oriented. Um, so going through people to try to find the physical therapist is a little bit more efficient on the PT website. And can, you re and can you repeat the name or, if you know it, the URL of the uh, PT website? You know, I don't know it, okay. um, but it's the American Association for Physical Therapy. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you for your question. Uh, Pamela, do we have any other questioners in the queue? Yes, we do. Our next question comes from the organization Calgary Health Region. Please proceed with your question or comment. Hi there. Um, I have actually a comment and a question. Um, Dr. Nygaard was asking or mentioning she'd be interested in hearing from programs that do have educational components. Uh, we have a multidisciplinary clinic with um, a range of uh, clinicians with different roles, and one thing that we are doing is we're teaching um, workshops to all of our new patients. Uh, we are, the present time, teaching two workshops on a weekly basis and putting about 40 to 45 women through. Um, and so they learn the basics, as, as you mentioned, about um, behavioral modification, types of incontinence, that type of thing, as well as um, pelvic muscle rehabilitation. So um, we are doing that on an ongoing basis, and these workshops actually have been taught here for about five years. They're also available to the general public for any, any women that's interested in attending. Um, my question, though, is I'm just interested in hearing what type of strategies Dr. Nygaard has in mind when it comes to prevention of these issues in, in the population of women, uh, particularly as we're aiming for the younger group before these problems develop and before the age. Great. Thank you for your question. Before Dr. Nygaard answers, can I ask you quickly to share with us, would you have any results 
from your group workshops. You've been doing them for quite a while, and I wonder if you've been able to track either patient satisfaction or any clinical outcomes. Yes, actually we have. Uh, we just had a research project, project that was just completed, and um, I believe it's out for publication now on um, uh, assessing the impact of these workshops in, uh, to the women that have attended. Um, and it's, uh, it proved to be statistically significant in decreasing, or increasing first of all their knowledge base and also decreasing their symptoms before they even have any other type of intervention beyond just the information they've received. So that's just uh, coming out currently. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Dr. Nygaard. Well, that's great to hear about um, because it makes really good sense to me that with a little bit of information, women often are able to self-treat to a certain extent. Um, in terms of strategies for prevention, one of the things that um, the pelvic floor disorders network um, has been beginning to plan, so this is not a trial that's now in progress, but beginning to plan different kinds of projects that might do just what you're doing really on a community level for women that aren't affected at this point, but providing basic information, providing information about pelvic floor and strengthening, um, and then following over time to see simply what does providing information um, do. So your results will be just great to see, to put in context with that. Um, a strategy for prevention that is fairly obvious based on all of the epidemiologic evidence is preventing weight gain. So all of the epidemiologic evidence, including our study, is quite consistent that obesity is a major independent risk factor for urinary incontinence, um, the most common pelvic floor disorder. So anything that we can do to prevent obesity would be a good thing. There's also randomized trial evidence that doing moderate exercise in the form of regular brisk walking prevents the onset um, of incontinence and decreases the severity over time. And that may be related to weight reduction or it may be related to overall fitness, um, but that's now been shown in a couple of studies. So, you know, walking is good for so many different things, but this may be one more thing that it's good for. Um, childbirth prevention issues are difficult to sort out. There are some things that happen during childbirth that we have figured out are bad. Um, the main one that comes to mind is routine episiotomy. And that, of course, was commonly done routinely until the weight of the evidence um, so strongly showed that that increased the risk of anal sphincter laceration as the head came through and that that in turn was a major cause of fecal incontinence in young women. Um, so there's been quite a turnaround in the United States over the last 10 years or so um, and routine episiotomy is not being done routinely anymore at most places. Um, and that's really decreased the incidence of anal sphincter lacerations um, at several different university settings that have looked at it. Just making that change decreased the anal sphincter laceration rate from 20% to about 3 to 4%, um, which is a huge difference. People often talk about um, elective cesarean delivery as a potential preventive measure. Um, and my personal opinion about that is it's an extremely foolish and ill-advised primary prevention measure for an entire population. Um, so that's nothing that I would be suggesting. Well, those are wonderful comments. Thank you. Um, and any additional follow-on questions from Calgary? Okay. Well, actually, I have a, a comment. So as, as a primary care physician, I've been... Uh, struggling uh, for a long time to figure out how to help patients become more motivated to manage their weight and exercise frequently. So what I just told you is we can add um, urinary incontinence to the list, at least for women, uh, about the reasons they should be attending to weight management and attending to regular physical activity. You know, absolutely. And there's also um, good level one evidence now that weight loss even 10% of body weight in women that are moderately um, obese significantly decreases urinary leakage. 
Um, there was just recently a study completed, sponsored by the NIDDK, um, that looked at women that generally had BMIs between about 30 and 40, um, and they had substantial help from losing 5 to 10% of their body weight. So it's definitely a message that you can give to those patients. Oh, that's amazing, and that's very good to hear, and obviously something that will mesh nicely, again, at least in the primary care specialties, um, with all the other things that we're doing to try to both prevent disease and improve health. So that's, that's music to my ears anyway. Mm -hmm. um, Pamela, any more questions? Yes, we do have a question, and then it comes from the organization of Memorial Hospital of Rhode Island. Please proceed. Hello, it's Joe Robotin. I'm a clinician educator at Brown Medical School, and um, I have a methods question, and thank you for your excellent research. Uh, the methods question is, uh, as we teach residents and medical students how to read a journal article, um, we'll often get stuck in the methods, and a question that occurs to me is how to um, interpret the relative contributions of the variables that you uh, have chosen to show in your table. And we're wondering um, and would like you to comment on the decisions about how to present your data um, in how you can allow for overlapping of the variables. For example, we would think that as women get older, they're more likely to have more children and that perhaps the younger women who have pelvic floor disorders have had children and that uh, the overlap of poverty and obesity would perhaps explain some of the findings. So my question is, will you comment on when you prepared and presented this paper for publication, how you decided to present the variables as you did, and for a general audience, um, how you would ask us to interpret your table? Sure. So this study, um, is not a controlled analysis of risk factors. It's only a description of prevalence estimates according to different demographic categories. So the variables are, as you say, intertwined and interlinked. The sample size is not large enough um, to do logistic regression analyses and adjust for all of the different factors. So it's very possible that somebody who is young with incontinence has that entirely because of their parity. Um, we can't say that at all from the data. They just say, okay, if you have a health practice and in your health practice you have mostly older women, well, here's what you should expect. You should expect that about half of them are going to have a pelvic floor disorder. But we can't say from these data why and if that's specifically due to age um, or due to some of the other variables. So this is purely a descriptive paper and not at all analytic in terms of identifying independent risk factors. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Okay. So, so Dr. Nygaard, in, in follow-up, do you have any sense or opinion about the relative contribution of these factors? Yeah, from this paper, no, um, because as I said, the, the sample size isn't large enough. We're collecting data still in this next NHANES wave um, so that we'll have about 4,000 women next time around that we could potentially look at least for urinary and fecal incontinence at the relative contribution of different variables. Because the prevalence of pelvic organ prolapse is so much smaller, it may take yet another wave beyond that to understand it better. Um, but we do know from other studies that have looked at urinary incontinence, and again, that's the pelvic floor disorder for which we have the most information um, at this point, we know that there are certain factors that are important. Age is independently um, predictive of having urinary incontinence. But interestingly, childbirth or parity only impacts the risk for incontinence in young and middle-aged women. And once women reach the range of about 60-65, then 
Pretty much every epidemiologic study that has looked at this question finds that childbirth is no longer a risk factor for incontinence in older women. And presumably that's because other factors that walk with aging, such as impaired mobility or diabetes or stroke, are coming into play, um, taking up sort of more of the risk, so to speak. Um, so those are kind of the main things that we have learned from urinary incontinence. And then, as I said before, that body mass index is independently associated with urinary incontinence after adjusting for things like age, race, parity, et cetera. Great. Thank you very much. Um, Pamela, do we have any more questions in the queue? Yes, sir. And our final question comes from the organization Passazant Hospital. Please proceed with your question or comment. Hi, this is Carrie Carls, and I am a certified continence nurse. And I wanted to comment in response to the earlier caller who was asking about where she could find different sources for therapists that would help take care of women that need um, pelvic floor muscle education. And uh, Dr. Nygaard mentioned the American Association, Association of Physical Therapists and the Urogynecologists gynecological society, um, and I just wanted to add to that that there are um, also certified continence nurses. I'm certified through the Wound Ostomy Continence Nurses Society, and uh, so there are a couple other sources that you can look for um, to find practitioners. Um, the Wound Ostomy Continence Nurses Society has a website. It's wocn.org, and also the Biofeedback Certification Institute of America has a listing of practitioners, and these would be to find people that do biofeedback-assisted pelvic floor retraining. And so I just wanted to add that. Thank you very much for calling with those additional resources, and uh, I think that's very helpful. Um, Dr. Nygaard, do you have any experience with either working with the uh, licensed incontinence nurse or using biofeedback as a treatment? Yes, and I'm really glad that you called in. Um, my experience is actually working with nurses who are either self-trained or partly formally trained, but not even necessarily certified as a continence nurse, um, but just as part of our clinical team. And they are completely integral in our teams in tertiary care centers. Um, it's obviously less feasible that a primary care practice would be able to have its own continence nurse or certified continence nurse. So it's just great that you point out that that's a resource that they can seek outside of the clinic to help augment the resources that they have. Um, for urinary incontinence, I'm personally not a big believer in biofeedback, only because the weight of the evidence from randomized trials doesn't suggest that biofeedback adds more above and beyond regular pelvic muscle training or behavioral therapy. Um, but having said that, there are certainly women that respond much better to different ways of teaching something. Um, so it's good to have a whole variety of options. And I think there's a real role um, for biofeedback in defecating dysfunction and some other pelvic floor disorders. So definitely another resource to keep in, in the, the menu, if you will, of things. And I think that's a great acknowledgement that uh, although we talk about uh, patients as populations and we do studies as populations, there's very often individual variation within that. Mm -hmm. And that's important to remember. Absolutely. Uh, um, if our caller is still on the line, can you tell us briefly what's involved um, in the certification part of being an incontinence nurse? Oh, yes. Um, well, uh, Attending a, an accredited wound ostomy continence certification program, I, I'm special. I have a specialty in all three areas. You can choose just to be certified uh -huh. in the continence portion. A baccalaureate degree is required, and then a certain number of years as a registered nurse. And then um, the education through the school, and then of course passing all of the classes, and then clinical hours, and then um, board certified through a national board exam. So, so there's both clinical content, there's uh, clinical training, and then certification exams. Exactly. And then if, if you're using um, biofeedback-assisted program, which I do incorporate into my practice, then uh, the companies that sell the biofeedback equipment also offer their own courses on using their equipment. Uh, the program that we have here 
it involves um, a lot of behavioral things. It's not just biofeedback. It's everything that Dr. Nygaard mentioned earlier where we talk about diet and fluid management and urge suppression techniques and, and so on and so forth, you know, looking at the whole picture and not just focusing only on pelvic muscle education. Great. Well, thank you very much, and thank you so much for calling in. Thank you. Pamela, do we have any other questioners on the line? Sir, not at this time. Okay. Well, I do have one more question for you, Dr. Nygaard. And you mentioned earlier about the use of anticholinergics, and you were um, talking about the additional behavioral intervention on top of anticholinergics. But I'd like to hear a little bit of your advice on how we should use um, how and when we should use anticholinergics for urge incontinence, and specifically in, in older women who have a much greater likelihood of adverse effects. And I believe some of the anticholinergics are on um, what's called the beers list, which are meds that we should not be using in older individuals, and, and, and how you make those kind of clinical decisions. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that, first off, I wouldn't prescribe anticholinergics in older women as my first-line therapy, specifically for the reason that you just pointed out. They have a higher risk of adverse events. They're on more medications that may interact, um, and it's more difficult to understand when they do have problems what it's related to. So the first thing that I would do in an older woman um, is have her keep avoiding diary which is an, a record of what goes in and what goes out for a couple of days. So the woman would measure how much she voids, when she leaks, note how frequently she's voiding. And sometimes what we find is, my goodness, they're in the bathroom 15 times a day because they're drinking water all day long and they're actually voiding five liters a day. And that's something that we would address immediately with fluid management. Or their mobility is so impacted that they don't want to get up to go to the bathroom on any regular basis, so they wait, and by the time they wait three times a day, it's too late. Um, and we really need to address the mobility or get a commode or some way to maximize their ability to go to the bathroom more regularly. So oftentimes we can troubleshoot um, just by going over aspects of avoiding diary. If we've done that and we've done behavioral management um, just as our continence nurse was describing, and those things aren't helpful, then and only then would I consider anticholinergic medication in older women. There are a host of different medications on the market. The main differences between them are that they can be given either once a day as long-acting drugs or they require taking them more frequently, three or four times a day, um, as short-acting drugs. The side effect profile is slightly different between various drugs, and the effectiveness is fairly sim similar from a clinical point of view. So in older women, I generally pick the lowest possible dose, and I often will start with generic oxybutynin for one reason. Uh, it's much less expensive than some of the newer, longer-acting drugs, and many older women pay for their own drugs or don't have coverage for these drugs. Um, and for another, because the half-life is short, we can start at a very low dose um, and titrate to try to avoid side effects. And I found that to be quite helpful in older women. Well, well, that's wonderful. And then in younger women, do you have a different approach? Do you still try to go through the voiding diary and the behavioral training first, or are you more, more likely to go to medication? Yeah, so in younger women, I always go through the voiding diary. Uh-huh. And then behavioral programs can take some time and energy and commitment. And some younger women just are too busy. They, they just can't fit into their schedule, you know, beyond taking care of three kids, a husband, and a job, <laughs> doing behavioral training where they show up once or twice a week for a, a period of weeks. So if it just isn't something that's feasible to them right now, um, then I'm not adverse to prescribing a medication. But in younger women, Honestly, if they have insurance coverage, then I might go to one of the once-a-day drugs just for ease of delivery um, rather than doing a three to four times a day drug because they're less likely to have significant adverse events from it. Great. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, and one last check, Pamela. Any questions in the queue at this time? 
No, sir, not at this time. Well, great. And so um, one last question for you, and, and you know, that is uh, any advice, we've been talking a lot about this clinical problem in the setting of primary care. Any sort of different comments you would have for the system changes or the kind of work uh, in a general obstetrics and gynecology practice? Well, I think a general obstetrics and gynecology practice um, it leans more towards primary care than towards, say, surgical specialization. Uh-huh. Um, so I think many of the comments that we've talked about are equally applicable for a family provider and for a primary care level obstet obstetrician and gynecologist. Um, I think obstetricians or anybody that delivers babies are in a key position to try to decrease the impact of childbirth on some of these conditions. So for example, they're in charge, they can decide not to cut an episiotomy. Um, or there's a fair bit of evidence linking pushing for more than three hours to pelvic floor disorders so they could perhaps intervene to prevent those sorts of things. Um, on an office level, we need more research, but the research that we have so far does suggest that doing pelvic muscle strengthening during pregnancy um, helps to decrease incontinence afterwards, at least for the first year after delivery. So that would be something that on an office level, any providers of obstetrical services from midwives on up to obstetricians um, could incorporate and hopefully we'll get better research out about specifically the best way to incorporate that. So there is an opportunity really for primary prevention um, around the time of pregnancy and delivery. Yeah, I think so, and I just think we need to sort it out a little bit better, but until we do, there certainly is no harm in teaching women how to strengthen pelvic floor muscles and encouraging them along their pregnancy to continue to do it um, rather than waiting for years and years and years for the very best research study to come out. Right, and then reinforcing those lifestyle uh, variables of exercise and diet. That's right. Oh, wonderful. Well, Dr. Nygaard, it has been absolutely wonderful to have you today, and it's been great to hear um, you know, your presentation of your work and your thoughtful discussion. Uh, I want to give you a last opportunity for a couple of closing comments. Any closing comments or thoughts you'd like to leave us with? No, I would just like um, to leave all of you that haven't really thought too much about pelvic floor disorders, um, this information that it's time to start thinking about them, taking them more seriously, making sure that there are people um, equipped to handle the symptoms that women present with so commonly in all healthcare systems, um, and to have a range of providers to be able to encompass the gamut from non-surgical all the way through to surgical therapy. Great. Well, thank you so much for the summary, and thank you again for your participation on the call today, uh, for your you. enlightening discussion, and for the research. Um, in closing, I want to remind all of our callers that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next uh, discussion will occur on November 19th, um, and our featured author at that time uh, will be Dr. Rita F. Redberg, and she will be discussing uh, her article, The Frequency of Stress Testing to Document Ischemia Prior to Elective Percutaneous Coronary Intervention. Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, this is designed as an interactive conference call to help you accelerate the changes that can improve patient care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of this call, and have a good day.